The title for this evening's talk is Behind Appearance. This is a topic that's going to be dealt with today and tomorrow in the talks. Namely, exploration of what, the, what is there behind the surface of things. Now, today's talk is primarily about how do we get there? How do we get the behind appearances? Uh, tomorrow's talk is primarily about what we find when we get there. I've plagiarized the title of this talk from the title of a book written by an eminent British biologist called C.H. Waddington. And he wrote this book about art and science and trying to explore what's behind appearances. On, as the book jacket says, I think quite correctly, a book in which he probes behind appearances into the underlying structure of things. Now, there's something very pointed about this thing, this saying, the underlying structure of things. Because in a way, implicit in that statement, which is very much uh, in keeping with uh, the, the thoughts and profound thoughts of C.H. Waddington, a, a person that I quite admire, died a few decades ago, uh, implicit in that statement is that the, uh, the structures that are, under, that are under the appearances are very much of the same nature as the structures above. We peel off one layer of reality and we find another very similar layer underneath. underneath. And this is indeed, it has been my experience, very much the exploration of science, of art, and philosophy. Just consider the way we tend to examine the way we are, who we are, investigating ourselves. One of the things that we do most assiduously is to go into the layers of our personal history. And this seems important. It can be important, of course, sure. And we go there from relating to the place we come from, relating to our family history, to our cultural influences, 
maybe our professional curriculum, you know, how we developed academically or whatever, or layers of our psychological development. This is very much uh, the way the investigation is carried out, and it's, of course, quite appropriate. It does remind me very much, and I use this as a metaphor, of this, uh, you know, they are familiar with those Russian dolls where a doll is embedded in another and then another and another. Sometime uh, in the past, I can't remember whether Raquel or me got a, um, one of these Russian dolls called Matryoshka in, in some shop in, I can't remember where, locally. And Raquel got very enterprising and she painted them. She, she did a marvelous job. And, and here I have the. The matryoshkas to prove it. This is the outer matryoshka. It's a lot. I don't know. I have room for them. And so he opened this up. Whoops. There's another. They, they do look a little different, of course. That's a general idea different colors and different uh, expressions. And um, let me see, how do I do this? And then um, another one, this is uh, the face a little dirty. I don't know if it's deliberate or not. This one has a fake smile. This one is pretty sad. This one is jubilant. <laughs> and this one, I can't tell. <laughs> There's nothing more, I think. Yeah, that's it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven Mitroskas. So you can see these dolls as representing successive stages in our press, personal development, professional development, psychological growth, whatever. Uh, it's true that this, this is a metaphor, of course, as a metaphor is deficient in not having, not showing your re relationship or cause, cause and effect. It's unclear how this say this uh, primal little doll, how did, did it generate the next one right here? And so on. I mean, this is just a metaphor. But in, in real historical terms, there would be a, a connection of cause and effect. But anyway, this blind spot notwithstanding, The, the metaphor epitomizes our way of investigating reality by going behind appearances. Most of the time, that's what we do. To the law, doll that lies behind this experience, there's a doll that's behind it. 
In the end, when we get to the tiniest doll of all, we're not really that much closer to the nature of things. There may be the temptation, you know, to take this little doll and this little Matryoshka and take some white out, say. I, I had the ten, 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 ten day, tendency to do that. In fact, you may see that the face actually got white out and then I painted it on top and decided this is not a good idea. It's, you know, this white out doll could be the soul of the Matryoshka. But it's a fake soul, you know. It's a, a soul couldn't be just the same as a non-soul, right? Yeah. Now, this, what I call the Maitroshka way of investigating reality is not limited to personal development, of course. And I could give a number of examples of how it works and how it doesn't work. I'll, I'll give you just one from physics. And it concerns um, a quite an outstanding physicist. He was a British physicist uh, um, called David Bohm. He, he wrote a very important textbook of physics, among other things. And Bohm made a proposal. He said that everything that we could observe, and what we observe, he called the explicate order, was the result of an underlying order which could not be observed directly. So it wasn't exactly the Mitroska thing, because he said, say, if this is underlying the order of the next or the biggest doll, uh, is it, it's not exactly the same, but it's essentially the same, you see. And this is his words. He, he died a few decades ago. He says, everything manifest in our world and universe in our dimensions of time, space, and form is the explicate order. The explicate is an unfolding of the immensely complex implicate. In other words, everything in the explicate is an unfolded aspect of the implicate and eventually enfolds back into the implicate. Sounds a bit... Uh, of a mouthful, but maybe not. The story, which I, I, I found very illuminating, is that one day Baum, before he thought of this implicate explicate thing, he was watching a TV program where they had some artifact, scientific artifact, there in the screen. The artifact consisted of two concentric cylinders, eh? two cylinders, one smaller than the other, one 
the smaller inside the bigger. And between the two cylinders, a layer of viscous material. The outer cylinder had a hole that could be opened and closed. And at some point, through the hole, somebody introduces a drop of ink, closes the hole. And now the, the outer cylinder rotates relative to the inner a little bit. I'm reconstructing that. I haven't seen the program, but this is as I take it to be. And lo and behold, the ink first becomes very thin and then disappears. Well, it's not so strange. It disappears. Dis dissolves in some way. But the extraordinary thing, for Bonner anyway, and for me too, I guess, is that when the cylinder rotates back to the initial position, the drop reforms. And there he came with this idea, the explicate is the drop, the implicate is the drop stretched out into such a thin line that couldn't be seen, but when things are reversed, it unfolds again, or folds again, or whatever you call it. Now, David Baum was, was annoyed, really, with the development of quantum mechanics, which he, of course, taught and so on, because it didn't fit into the format of other aspects of physics. And, and so he said, aha, that's what happened. Things follow different rules in the quantum world, but basically nothing much has changed. Now, I, who was a great, when I was a scientist, was a great admirer of David Bohm and his writings, was very much taken by this uh, implicate-explicate order. And, and somehow my interest in that, my appreciation of that uh, alternative, is fading away. Because Basically, I see that Baum is going to a Mitroska kind of interpretation, where the inner little doll is still a doll. And of course, uh, Waddington's book is very much like that, too. I mean, deep, significant explorations behind appearances, but they don't go far enough. They don't go to the bottom of things as I would like to go. And as the Buddha would like to go. After all, the Buddha never tired to remind us that we must go beyond name and form 
beyond what in, in the language of the Buddha is called nama, name, and rupa, form. So, how do we go beyond the tiniest of my troskas? How do we go beyond the implicate? From the explicate to the implicate, fine. How do we go beyond the implicate? For me, besides the Buddha, the most eloquent guide in this radical search is none other than St. John of the Cross. Very appropriate character to name in these precincts. precincts. This is what St. John says, San Juan de la Cruz. He was Spaniard, and he said it in Spanish, and I'll very briefly say it in Spanish as well. He said in Spanish, Para venir a lo que no sabes, has de ir por donde no sabes. In English, he said, in order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which you do not know. This is a totally revolutionary. He wrote much about that. Let me just quote him a little more at length in English this time. He said, course, he uses uh, Christian language, and that's fine, naturally. He says, the soul not only advances securely when it walks in darkness, but even gains and profits when in a new way it receives some betterment. It usually does so in a manner it least understands, and thus ordinarily thinks it is getting lost. Since it has never possessed this new experience, which makes it go out, blinds it, and leads it astray with respect to its first method of procedure, Matroska here, eh? astray from the Matroska, it thinks it's getting lost rather than advancing successfully and profitably. Indeed, it is getting lost to what it knew and tasted, and is going by a way in which it ne neither tastes nor knows. To reach a new and unknown land, and journey along unknown roads, travelers cannot be guided by their own knowledge. Instead, they need to have doubts about their own knowledge and seek the guidance of others. For me, that's where trust and faith in a teacher comes along. I'm not saying, I mean, my faith in my teacher. Obviously, they cannot reach new territory or attain this added knowledge if they do not take these new and unknown roads and abandon those familiar ones. Similarly, 
People learning new details about their art or trade must work in darkness, darkness, and not with what they already know. If they refuse to lay aside the former knowledge, they will never make any further progress. The soul, too, when it advances, walks in darkness and unknowing. To me, is incredibly eloquent. And of course, this is very much what Buddhist teachers teach. And very particularly, Zen teachers are uh, so have tuned in to this need to go into the unknown. Listen to Suzuki Roshi. Um, from a book whose title says a lot about this, namely Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. He says, a, a book was published in 1970. He says, our original mind includes everything within itself. It is always rich and sufficient within itself. You should, uh, and by the way, within itself means not within the, the framework of the knowledge acquired, within the pure mind that the mind is. That's uh, implied there. You should not lose your self-sufficient state of mind. This does not mean a closed mind, but actually an empty mind and a ready mind. If your mind is empty, it is always ready for anything. It is open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. And if I may read from another teacher, Thing is clear enough. This is from Peter London. A quality of mind that will further our purpose of creating an open frame of reference is our acknowledgement of the legitimacy of not knowing. Not knowing what is about to take place, not knowing in advance anything about ourselves, our partners, the piece of paper that we face, even the point of the exercise at hand. Our usual response to any real sense of not knowing is to shrink back from the encounter. As a consequence, we are likely to fall back upon tried ways, disengage with the actual circumstances we find ourselves in, and rerun past scenarios. The failure to make contact with the reality we are in causes us in turn to feel out of our element and disempowered. In this dispirited state, we certainly do not feel in a mood for creative play or adventures 
of the imagination. We, he says, meaning Peter London, want to claim the positive quality of the not knowing frame of mind and not permit it to be an impediment to full engagement in creative, creative activities. Instead of allowing not knowing to paralyze forward progress, we can see not knowing as a frame of mind which occurs at the boundary line between all that is known and all that's yet to be known. The only point of departure into the unknown, into transformative possibilities, is at this very zone that borders on the known and unknown. This is the fruitful departing edge for all adventures that lead to discovery. Knowing is having all the pieces of the man in place and traversing familiar grounds. Not knowing is to appreciate that what you do know. Sorry. Not knowing is to appreciate that what you do know is limited and circumscribed by what you yet have to know. And finally, there's a, finally, I mean, for, for this topic, just to top this Zen teachings, is a story that some of you may have heard me recall, and you may, some of you may hear me again and bear with me, about the Zen teacher in Japan, I suppose, who is receiving a visit from a prospective student student wants to work with him, study with him, and so meets his prospective master and wants to impress him, start talking and talking and talking about all his views about Zen, and the teacher doesn't say anything, doesn't answer anything, but this being Zen, he serves him some ceremonial tea and he pours the tea, and he keeps pouring and pouring, and the tea overflows the cup, and the saucer, and the table. And students say, wait, wait, stop, what are you doing? He says, the teacher says, yeah, I'm doing what you're asking me to do. You have your mind full stuff, full of stuff. There's no room there for anything else, and you want me to teach you. I hope the student got a point. So, how do we empty the mind so it can receive? One, one way to, I mean, this may not be automatic, it, it's, a, it's a process. In fact, sometimes we have to start processing stuff that we have accumulated. Because otherwise, if we lock it up, what we have in the mind, any moment we turn around, it pops up again. We re regurgitate it. it. I mean, 
unexamined, unprocessed stuff doesn't just go away. Uh, in the backyard of our home where Raquel and me live, we have some, other people probably have, uh, some containers, I was a plastic black square containers for composting. There's actually two containers. One where we put the material to be composted fresh, and the other where we have the material, say, that we put up to the beginning of the summer now, and now in this hot month, it's fermenting, it's being processed, it's being digested. When we look in there at the end of the summer, the big pile of stuff will have shrunk to very tiny residue. And that residue in itself will be used by Raquel, who's the gardener in the house, <laughs> to fertilize the garden. That's processing. It takes time. Different things get processed at different times. And this is something we got to do with our mind, to compost this stuff in our mind. Sure. And the practice does this supremely, just as well as those plastic black containers we have in our backyard. The other thing is letting go. Like at the very end that has been composted, putting it into the gardener's fertilizer. Easily done with the composter, composting not so easily done with the mind. The mind is not very adept at letting go like the country like, likes to cling on to stuff. And uh, uh, letting go will be the prime topic of the Sunday talk. So I'm not going to spend much time on that. Processing and letting go open the way towards emptiness, towards voidness. I was just looking at uh, one of the um, discourses of the Buddha about the, uh, the topic of which is voidness. And he illustrates uh, the path to voidness, I mean the steps towards voidness, towards emptiness, um, using the context of the place where he is holding the retreat. Unlike us, who are in these cozy rooms with fans and lights and all that, he is uh, outdoors. Of course, he's an uh, Indian climate, <coughs> lends itself to that very often. Not always, but very often. And then he talks about the park. And um, he starts talking, he says, uh, after various steps that I'm skipping, he says, 
consider, direct your perception, your attention to the perception of, say, the forest out there. And we, we have forest enough here. And I was, so I was looking at my talk a moment ago from the window of my room. I say, hey, look at the forest. And as I look at the forest, there comes a train. You saw the train? Do, 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 do. However, it make the noises it makes. See, and I said, hey, the Buddha didn't have this beautiful illustration of what he's talking about. Before looking at the forest, I decided to focus my attention on the train. There it was, shining, because there's some sun shining on it. And, um, hey, and then it was gone. And I was left with the forest behind. That, that's very much the kind of process towards voidness that the Buddha talks about, except, of course, he doesn't end in, in forest. Forest is not in the void. Then he says, direct your attention to the perception, drop, drop the perception of, of the forest now, as I did drop the perception of the train because it went away, actually. You don't have to ask the forest to go away. Simply shift your perception now to the earth. No, it's as if there's no more forest, you're just looking at the earth. Now, look at the earth, and there's the earth. So we're going gradually. In a way, you could say it's going through various layers, like Matryoshkas. And then the next layer is emptiness. Because when you take the earth out, you're left with emptiness. And then the Buddha goes on, and everything that he directs attention to, it's not helpful now to go through the whole process that he goes there. He says, okay, now drop that. Okay, drop that. Okay, drop that. Infinite consciousness. Okay, spend some time there. And then drop that too. Finally, go into a place of emptiness. Not what we used to do. Not an easy process. But the practice does open the door for that. And I'll talk more about those final steps in the practice tomorrow. Practice is really wherever we are being exactly where we are. And shifting our mind to see more deeply into where we are. Take that hand. A, a teacher from the Zen tradition, I would say, although very a teacher on his own, really. Um, 
talks about eating an orange. If you eat an orange in forgetfulness, cut in your, caught in your anxiety and sorrow, the orange is not really there. But if you bring your mind and body together to produce true presence, you can see that the orange is a miracle. Peel the orange. Smell the fruit. Put a section in your mouth. Close, close your mouth mindfully. And with mindfulness, feel the juice coming out of the orange. Taste the sweetness. Do you have the time to do so? If you think you don't have the time to eat an orange like this, what are you using that time for? Are you using your time to worry or using your time to live? So, this may not be very grandiloquent about going behind appearances, but it is going behind appearances. And it applies to all kinds of circumstances where we, we make a shift of mind. We're not just going to, from one matryoshka to another to another because our mind has shifted, is not, I, I mean, it's, it's experiencing exactly what's happening right there, right now, without trying to explain anything, being there. I like that uh, tie, as Tignat Hand is called. Also says this about, um, there's something similar about um, rituals. He says, the principle of the practice is simple, to bring our minds back to our bodies, to produce our true presence, and to become fully alive. Everything is happening under the light of mindfulness. In the Jewish and Christian traditions, we say, we are doing everything in the presence of God. That's another way of expressing the same reality. When Jews have a Shabbos dinner, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. When Jews have a Shabbos dinner, they lay the table, pour the milk, and cook the food aware of the presence of the divine. See, not creating another little thing about the divine or whatever. Just, just, it comes through that being truly and authentically open to that which we do not know. In Buddhism, God is mindfulness and concentration. 
every single thing that takes place is exposed to the light of mindfulness and concentration. And that energy of mindfulness and concentration is the essence of the Buddha. Mindfulness and concentration always bring insight. And insight is a factor that liberates us from suffering because we're able to see the true nature of reality. All rituals are nothing if they are empty of the energy of mindfulness and concentration. We call these energies the Holy Spirit. When a priest celebrates the Eucharist, breaking the bread and pouring the wine is not the gesture and the words that create the miracle of the Eucharist. It's the priest's capacity to be alive, to be present at that moment that can wake up the whole congregation. The priest can break the bread in such a way that everybody becomes aware that, that this piece of bread contains life. That requires strong parties, uh, practice on the part of the priest. And I would say, to know why Thai denied that, that requires strong practice on the part of the audience, of the participants. We have to be ready to receive that. If he's not alive, if he's not present, if he doesn't have the power of mindfulness and concentration, he won't be able to create life in the concentration and uh, the congregation and in the church. we can generate mindfulness, concentration, and insight. Insight is our liberation. Insight liberates us from our fear, fear, our ignorance, our loneliness, and despair. It is this insight that helps us penetrate deeply into the nature of no birth and no death, and the interconnected nature of all things. As I was uh, reading this, I uh, remembered uh, last Wednesday, Wednesday when somebody who's here now mentioned to us the experience he had with uh, a woman called Amma or Amaji, an Indian woman whose practice is to Gather, invite people to come and be hugged by her. And she can spend, from what I understand, 12 hours, 24 hours, 36 hours, nonstop, hugging, and really hugging people. Hug. It sounds mechanical, right? And yet, it can be enormously powerful, as that person in a Sangha 
said to us last Wednesday. And, uh, and I understand I haven't been hugged by her. I've had other experiences of a similar nature, but not that one. And the, the issue is, is not the mechanical hug, is the state of the mind of Amma and, and, I insist, the receptive state in the mind of those that are being hugged that creates the miracle, that goes beyond the known experience. The experience becomes an extraordinary one, I imagine, because it goes beyond the hug. It, it becomes a testimony of that which is behind the appearances of the hug. So, in closing, let me recap the thrust of what I've shared with you. I, I've been making the point that in our exploration of what lies behind the appearances, we need to distinguish between the futile search and the effective search at least from the point of view of going really deeply behind the appearances. What I call the futile search, which, which yes, uncovers a few things, surely, but it's, it's no, no radical, the non-radical search, perhaps, I should better say. The non-radical search is like going through these matryoshkas and understanding how they relate to each other, and, um, and going to different levels of reality and what's behind and whether it's in philosophy, in, in art criticism, in psychology, in science, whatever. But staying always with layers of the same nature as the layer above. And so it is limited by what it has been clinging to, the structures that it has been holding on to. What I call the effective or the radical search, in that rather than looking for answers in the layers out there, we turn around and exploring what do we need to do to the mind so it can see things in a new light. So even something as simple as an orange, if we invite the mind to be fully present with it, to be unencumbered, to be mindful, 
then the orange, or whatever it is, will taste as it never has before. And so, if we face life, if we embrace life with a different mind, with a mind full, the world will be for us as it has never been before. So let's just sit for a couple of minutes and silence, please. Just a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.